Hey, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13 this morning. We are still here, Cheryl and I. We have not left for Ghana yet. Still waiting for a word. Uh, I've asked the Lord about this more than once. And, uh, you know, he still has a few things, I think, at least for this part of it, a few things he wants us to talk about before we get on to Deuteronomy, before I go and all that stuff. So uh, we'll let you know. You'll hear, those of you who are wondering, you'll know when we're gone because I won't be here. (laughs) You'll say, oh, they must be in Ghana. So Matthew chapter 13, and, and real quickly on the Hot Dog Fellowship, I was asked this question, is it a potluck too? It's always a potluck. Sure, bring a pot, good luck. Um, <laughs> no, if you want to bring desserts and side dishes, hot dogs and buns will be provided, and I think drinks, I'm not sure, yeah, and drinks, and then we'll have that shaved ice truck out there, and if you need more than that, bring it, bring it. All right, Matthew 13, 52, again, as we read earlier, therefore every scribe who has become a disciple, note this, of the kingdom of heaven, is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Lord Jesus, we're talking about heaven. And we've been in this place thinking about and processing. And wow, Lord, I, forgive me for thinking it was a one teaching job. Um, so much to consider and think through where heaven is concerned and our eternal home and what you're accomplishing and what you have accomplished and what your massive master plan is. Father, it's truly breathtaking. And I pray that you give us ears to hear this morning. Lord, we've covered actually even in two teachings a lot of ground on heaven. Wednesday night, Father, there was a lot of download and even questions coming out of that. And I pray that by the time we have sifted through the information that as we so often pray, the revelation would be in our hearts. And Father, that we wouldn't get hung up on confusion, but we would hear the clear, unadulterated truth. The truth that comes by your word, Father. We open your word, old and new, to bring out this treasure. So Spirit, would you just teach us, we ask, humbly in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we have a word that we use, a culture uses, to talk about when everything's going right. When all is right with the world, the sun is shining, the water's clear, the birds are singing, the kids are playing, and the summer breeze makes you feel fine. (laughs) A word to describe beauty and peace and serenity and well-being, we'll just say, man, it was just heavenly. Just heavenly. Isn't it amazing how we have words like that and don't even really think about where it comes from? Something, for something to be heavenly is just to be right and, and good. We also have a word for when things are horribly wrong, stressful, dark, and messed up, hellish. Man, it was a hellish day. What's ironic about that is none of us have ever had a hellish day. Not even close. But heaven and hell, these, these two Concepts are more than concepts. These two ideas are more than ideas. They're not just philosophical constructs. They're realities. They're two realities that intrude upon our mortality. Heaven and hell. Far more than some would even like to admit. Oh, people don't mind thinking about going to heaven or talking about heaven, but hell, let's not talk about that. And even heaven forces us to consider something beyond where we are right now. Sadly, according to philosopher Charles Taylor, this is a recent phenomenon when Western thought, quote, decided to lop off the idea of transcendence in our popular consciousness. Let me read that again. Western thought has decided to lop off the idea of transcendence in our popular consciousness. There's a word for that. It's called secularism. And it's, it's causing all kinds of soulish distress Mental anguish and distress because there's only so far you can go in this world, in this life. Without transcending, without considering going beyond, you can only climb so high. You can only swim so far. You can only travel so much and ultimately you come to the end of it if it's limited to the here and the now. The reality is we all deeply desire so much more than we can ever have in this life. If you think you're gonna find satisfaction in the here and now, you will be sorely disappointed, as so many are. So again, I repeat, 
Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, he has also set eternity in their hearts. That's where the desire is. That's where the longing is. He's planted this seed, if you will, the seed of eternity. And it will either germinate or it will remain there, cold, lifeless, untended, and uncomfortable. But the reality is it wants to grow. It wants to grow. The idea of heaven wants to expand in us. C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity so many years ago, if we find ourselves with a desire that, is, that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Right? That's why this life doesn't do it for you. That the best of all possible experiences here ultimately ends, falls flat, doesn't take you to the next place. That's why people of faith, as it said in Hebrews 11, verse 16, says they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So that desire for heaven, that longing for beyond, in people who take God at his word can't help but grow and sprout visibly and tangibly in our life. And that's where we're going, just so you know, this morning and on Wednesday night. That's where we're going in this study of heaven. We dealt with hell. I really don't want to give hell more than the one teaching, at least for now. But heaven, we're now getting into more than just considering the reality of heaven, but talking about the impact of heaven. To stay in this conversation just a bit longer and talk about the ramifications of heaven in the heart. Heaven in the heart. And I think, I hope you'll find this both personal and practical, this morning and Wednesday both. Matthew 4, 17. I remind you of what Jesus said when he launched his public ministry. First words out of his mouth as he begin, began to, to preach and to teach. Matthew 4, 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, he said, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, John the Baptist had said that just previously. Started that ball rolling. Last of the Hebrew prophets, now the first of the New Testament prophets, but of course so much more, Jesus says the same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, Wednesday night, we noted this. The phrase, at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That phrase is from engizo, the Greek word engizo, which means The kingdom of heaven has come near. Come near. What does that mean? Luke 17, verse 20, tells us that having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them, and he said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look here or there. For behold, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Interesting phrase, and a very debated phrase over the years in Christianity. The kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, he says. It's come near, he says. But now he says the kingdom of God is in your midst. And that enigmatic phrase has been dissected many times with multiple assumptions. The kingdom of God is in your midst. What does that mean? Let's make it easy. When the king is here, the kingdom is near. For Jesus to say the kingdom of God is in your midst, he's standing right there. You don't have a kingdom without a king. And for the king to be in their midst is to say in the same way the kingdom of God is right here in your midst. The kingdom of heaven is at hand because Jesus was at hand. Because Jesus was standing right there in their midst. But wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't cast it off as just a physical thing. Because there is a spiritual sense to what Jesus said. A beautiful, profound, life-changing spiritual reality and an internal reality with enormous implications for you and for me even today. The kingdom of God, he says, is in your midst. What's in your midst? In the Greek, it's entos humon entos, which translates within you're within. The kingdom of God is, Jesus says, within your within. The kingdom of God, Jesus said, is inside your insides. Like a seed. 
like, like a kernel that's been implanted there in your midst. Now, again, obvious physical understanding. Jesus was in their midst, as he said. The kingdom of God is in your midst. But deep inside, something spiritual happens as the kingdom is implanted. Now, as we've seen, as we've talked about, biblically, hell is for real. Hell is forever. And hell is not for you. It was created for the devil and his angels, Matthew 25, 41. We can say the same thing about heaven. Heaven is for real. Heaven is forever. Heaven is for you. But let's make some heavenly clarifications so we don't get all lost in the elusive and the mystical. This is incredibly practical because heaven and hell aside for just a moment, Jesus is for real. Jesus is forever. Jesus is for you. If you ever feel like everyone's against you, stop and remember, Jesus is for you. I think that's carried me through more moments of self-doubt than anything else. Everybody else may be opposed to what I'm doing or who I am or, or where I stand, but, but Jesus, Jesus is for me. Jesus is for me. That is, he loves me, loves you, gave himself for our salvation so that the fires of hell could never touch us and the gates of heaven would be wide open for us. Jesus is for you. We've also seen about heaven, by the way, and just, just reviewing a couple of things here, that, that heaven is a created reality. Created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What heavens? The first, second, and third heavens. Remember in Jewish thought, first, second, and third heavens. First heaven, the atmosphere. Second heaven, outer space. Third heaven, the current, spiritual, other dimensional place of the heavenly throne of God. He does have a place that his throne is located, although, as we've also talked about, God himself is not limited to that place. God is so much bigger than any created reality, anything, including heaven itself, but it's the place where he chooses to present himself as residing, where he chooses to have his heavenly throne. Now, Wednesday night, we also talked about that he promises a new heaven, a new earth, with that massive, beautiful, cube-like New Jerusalem, 1,500 miles cubed, that is height, length, width, depth. 1,500 miles. Read it, Revelation 21, verse 16. And we pointed out also on Wednesday night, if you missed this, listen, it's so precious, that 1,500-mile cube of New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven that will be there, new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem right in the middle. It's so similar. It's a picture. Actually, we had a picture of it earlier on. We had a shadow of the New Jerusalem, the tabernacle. For the tabernacle is 15 feet cubed. It's an exact cube in height, in length, in width, and in depth. And so of New Jerusalem, John writes in Revelation 21.3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. What's he talking about? New Jerusalem. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. So for all our study from Genesis all the way through Numbers so far, guess what? The tabernacle all the while was a picture of God's eternal intention, that he would be centered in the midst of all of our eternity. As he was central in the camp of Israel, yet with all the physical limitations, it was a little strange. In this case, that new Jerusalem is our new zip code, our heavenly home, and the Father and the Son are there. It's amazing. But let's be more specific with heaven for a few minutes. Again, Matthew 4, 17, Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew alone says the kingdom of heaven. That phrase you will only find in the New Testament in the Gospel of Matthew. 32 times you will hear Jesus, John the Baptist, others will say the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. The other Gospels use a different phrase, the kingdom of God. Now, some have just assumed, well, that's, that's just Matthew. Matthew's the Gospel of the King. Matthew's trying to make kingdom implications. So Matthew has Jesus saying the kingdom of heaven 
Whereas the rest say kingdom of God because their focus isn't so much on the kingdom as Matthew's is. You can make that argument. But Matthew 1.15, or I'm sorry, Mark 1.15 says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. So the same phrase that Matthew 4.17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Mark 1.15 says the kingdom of God is at hand. So some say, see, it's just synonymous. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, same thing. No difference. There is a difference. Now, they can be used synonymously. You can refer to the kingdom of God and be referring to the kingdom of heaven because the two are quite well connected. But what's interesting is Matthew has Jesus using both phrases. Matthew has Jesus say, Matthew 12, 28, if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then in Matthew 12, 43, he says, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. But Matthew 19, verses 23 and 24 is interesting. Jesus says to his disciples, truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Then he turns right around and the next sentence says, again I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, again it sounds synonymous. But I believe that's because one is more broad and general and the other is more specific. One is all-encompassing, the other one is more narrow in definition and is encompassed by the first. Let me explain. By the way, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, there's also the millennial kingdom. Oh, great. Well, how does that fit in there? Now, we've got three kingdoms to try and sort through very simply. Revelation chapter 20, verse 6 tells us, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. My friends, that is the resurrection to eternal life. That is the resurrection that comes by someone who's died in faith. You die in faith. The first resurrection is for you. That's pre-cross for all the Older Testament saints who died in faith, the dead in Christ will rise. And and it's post-cross, the dead in Christ will rise. It's faith in the Lord that matters. You die in faith, you are part of the first resurrection. And so blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. They will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for how long? A thousand years. It doesn't say for a a generic amount of time, we'll call it a thousand years. It's very specific. There is a thousand year millennial kingdom promised in the Bible if you take God at his word. Now, if you think God is a trickster who allegorizes everything, you're going to think a thousand years could mean anything. But the Bible's very clear. It's a millennial kingdom. By the way, side note, and I'm only answering this because I was asked this question on Friday. Why is there a millennial kingdom at all? Why not just pop us out of here like daisies, right? Right? Take us right on up. Why not just be done with it, you know? Many of us are there right now. Why not just be done with it, Lord? Can we just be finished with this and go on home and be done? Eternity before us, new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, let's do it now. Why a thousand year kingdom in between? And there's a very simple biblical answer. Because God made an unconditional covenant promise with Israel. He promised them they would have a kingdom on the earth. God has to fulfill his promises. They have never had a kingdom like God promised they would have a kingdom. What about the kingdom of David, kingdom of Solomon? Okay, listen to this. Psalm 2, verse 8. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth is your possession. The Father says to the Son, when have the very ends of the earth ever been the possession of Jesus? I'm talking about in a ruling dominion sort of way. Hasn't happened yet. We have not seen it happen The millennial kingdom fulfills a promise to Israel through David during which the son of David, Jesus Christ, will rule and reign on the earth from David's throne in Jerusalem over a thousand years of peace, prosperity, and paradise. That's God's promise. He has to do it. The millennial kingdom, do you realize this is really not even for you and me? We're there. We get to be part of the administration, part of the government of Jesus 
Revelation says three times ruling and reigning with him for that thousand year period. But the thousand year kingdom, the millennial kingdom is for Israel. It's a fulfillment of all of his promises. Listen to this one. Isaiah chapter two, verse two. It will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised up above the hills and all the nations, all the nations, get that, will stream to it. Many people will come and say, come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths for the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations, render decisions for many peoples. They will hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. The kingdom promise. First Samuel 7 and 8, he tells David, I'm gonna build a house for you, David. You're not gonna build one for me, but I'm gonna set one of your line on the throne in Jerusalem. He's gonna rule and reign. That's Jesus. A promise has yet not fulfilled, but it will be. That's why a millennial kingdom. Are we clear on that? We understand. So if anyone ever says, why is there a millennial kingdom? You say Israel. It's that simple. Fulfills the Abrahamic, the land, the Davidic covenants that Jake is teaching our, our students. I think that's marvelous. How many youth ministries teach on the covenants of God? But wait, there's more. We're gonna scratch eternity a little bit here. Uh, wait, I'm sorry, one more thing I gotta tell you. Speaking of Israel, and then I'll shift back. You know what today is? On the Jewish calendar? It's Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av. That is today. It is the saddest day on the Jewish calendar. As we celebrate, as we worship, as we gather in fellowship and hugs and everything else in Israel, and throughout the Jewish world, today is a day of sorrow and mourning and fasting and silence. Why? Because on this day in history, note this, these are the things that have happened on the 9th of Av. First off, they believe anyway that the spies came back and gave their bad report, Numbers 13 and 14, on Tisha B'Av. And the people would then wander for the next 38 years. Both temples in Jerusalem fell on Tisha B'Av, 586 B.C. and Tisha B'Av, 70 A.D. Both Jewish temples burned to the ground. In 132 A.D. was the final defeat of the Bar Kokhba rebellion in Israel, finally laying waste to any kind of Jewish homeland. In 133, the next year, the Temple Mount was plowed under completely. The temple was already gone, but the mount itself got plowed in 1095, the first crusade happened, began on Tisha B'Av and killed 10,000 Jews. On the 9th of Av, 1290, the Jews were expelled from England. On the 9th of Av, 1492, while Columbus sailed the ocean blue, the Jews were expelled from Spain and from Portugal. I've told you before, there are some who think Columbus may actually have had Jewish blood, which might be part of his reason for getting on a boat and sailing off. Because he was reading the writing on the wall. We don't know. 1914, World War I began on Tisha B'Av. 1942, on Tisha B'Av, the deportations of the Warsaw Ghetto began as Jews were carted off to Treblinka and the Holocaust was fully underway. So the Jews see this and they recognize this throughout history as a bad day. They, I think more than anyone else, might have the right to say it was a hellish day. <laughs> Tisha B'Av. So they have a kingdom promised, a kingdom coming, and God will fulfill that promise. Now, as we scratch eternity, go back to where we started. A guy named Jonathan Parnell, he said, we have this craving for depth, for meaning, but we're told we'd better find it in the things around us or nowhere at all. As singer-songwriter Ingrid Michaelson sings, we all, we all, we all gonna live tonight like there's no tomorrow, because we're the afterlife. Can I just say, as a side note, if you're the afterlife, have a nice life, I don't want it. I love Joe, but Joe is not my afterlife. Sorry, bro. 
We are not the afterlife. As we began, that's not enough. It's just not enough. We never get to where our hearts want to go. And so he continues, tragically, this just leads us to climb the highest mountains, run through some fields, throw ourselves headfirst into everything this world has to offer, and we still haven't found what we're looking for. Bono was right, for you YouTube fans. But can you imagine climbing the mount of the Lord to be taught by him in Jerusalem? Can you even for a moment fathom what that's going to be like in the millennial kingdom? Come, let us go up to the house of the Lord. Let's sit at Jesus' feet and listen to him teach us of his ways. Wow. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament speak then of the kingdom, the millennial kingdom. So that's the first thing that we we now define, understand, it's that thousand-year reign But beyond the thousand years, both, again, the Hebrew Scriptures and the Newer Testament, they tell us that the kingdom now goes on into eternity. The millennial kingdom begins that kingdom reign, but it doesn't end at the end of the thousand years. No, it continues on. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on, and God uses the word forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Millennial kingdom fades right on into eternity and becomes eternal in nature. Luke chapter one, verse 32. He will be great. He'll be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom, listen, his kingdom will have no end. So the millennial kingdom is a thousand years, but it's not just a thousand years. Because, again, if you've read and studied Revelation, something happens. That kingdom has a pause. There's a judgment, a great throne judgment, Revelation 20, and then the kingdom continues on. Heaven and earth will pass away at that point. And then God brings in the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, and the kingdom rolls. So, the kingdom of heaven, second kingdom here. First one's the millennial kingdom. Second, now we roll into the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven speaks obviously in contrast to the kingdom of earth because it's the kingdom of heaven, right? I'm trying to be simple if I can here. It indicates the current spiritual realm of the throne of God. So right now, there is a kingdom of heaven. There is the dominion in heaven In the third heaven, as we've talked about, where God's throne is, the kingdom of heaven. It's current, but it's also future. Most specifically, it will be the eternal kingdom that flows right out of the millennial kingdom. And it's what we read about again in Revelation 21 and 22, the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven is now because that's where God resides, but the kingdom of heaven is also then because it flows right on into eternity, the kingdom of heaven, the new heaven. New earth, new Jerusalem. So when Jesus says, get this, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near, is at hand, that's what he's pointing to ultimately. That's the final fulfillment. The kingdom of heaven where we will be in heaven, where the rule and reign will be 24-7 heaven. Heavenly. But again, he said, and get this, Behold, the kingdom of God is within your within, in your midst. It's inside your inside. So the kingdom of God is anywhere and everywhere that God is and God is worshiped. Kingdom of God is here and now because we worship him, because he's present among us. The kingdom of God is beyond any kind of limitation of location, any kind of definition. It's, it's not physical or, or spiritually limited. It speaks of his eternal dominion. It speaks of his authority, his power, his majesty. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen, Romans eleven thirty six. 36. Kingdom of God. Revelation 7, 12, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. That's the kingdom of God and that is immeasurable. It's everywhere, every place where, again, where God is worshiped and he has his dominion. 
which brings a certain weight to Jesus saying, for behold, the kingdom of God is within your within. The kingdom of God. He didn't say the kingdom of heaven is in your midst. He said the kingdom of God is. That dominion of almighty God is over you, in your heart, in my heart. That's huge. That is heart bursting. The kingdom of God. And this is where it gets really intriguing. Turn back, or maybe you're already there, to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. And let's just sit here for a few minutes this morning. Oh, we got time. That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. Large crowds gathered to him, so he got into a boat, his, his standard pulpit, and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, but because they had no depth of soil... When the sun had risen, verse six, they were scorched and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns and the thorns came up and choked them out. Others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. He who has ears, let him hear. And Jesus teaches them in parables. Parables, a parable, paraboles, means to throw alongside Balo, like the word ball. <laughs> Balo means to throw. Para means alongside. So a parable is a throwing alongside. It's taking a, a known tangible truth, like a sower and his seed out in a field, a known tangible truth, and it's throwing it alongside a mystery to explain the mystery. That's a parable. The parable of the sower, please get this note, this in your Bibles, if not in your thinking. The parable of the sower, Matthew 13, verses one through nine, is the standard for all the others. This is the one that begins, especially in this section, all the parables to follow. It's the key to understanding the rest, and Matthew collects all of these seven parables here, chronologically, I believe, and thematically, because these are Jesus' teachings on the kingdom of heaven. Millennial kingdom, thousand-year reign, right? Kingdom of God, absolute dominion wherever God is. The kingdom of heaven, specifically that location of his eternal throne right now and the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, kingdom of heaven, our kingdom on into eternity then. And that's what Jesus is now talking about. That's what he's focused on, the kingdom of heaven. Every single one of these seven parables are kingdom of heaven parables. Listen to Jesus, verse 10. And the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Now, I think part of the reason they asked the question is because they didn't understand the parable. So they themselves are going, can't you just tell us what's up? Why, why do you have to do this mystery sowing seed thing? And, with the, and I, We know there's got to be something to this. What is to it? And Jesus said to you, it's been granted to know the mysteries of what? The kingdom of heaven. Specific. By the way, the reason why I de discriminate between kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven it's because Jesus is always intentional with every word he uses. He's not like us just throwing around phrases. We use synonyms all the time to express ourselves. God knows exactly what he's saying, why he's saying it, and when he's saying it. So throughout these seven parables, it is all kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven, because that's what Jesus is focused on. He says, to you it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has to him, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. And whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. And Jesus, I believe, is talking there about faith. If you have just a little bit of faith, you're going to get more. If you have no faith, you're going to lose even a little bit. Revelation, understanding, you have a little bit of understanding, but if there's no faith, you're going to lose that. But if you have a little understanding with a little faith, you're just gonna be given more and more and more. Isn't that true, brothers and sisters? Isn't that true in your faith walk? You have a little faith and you open up the Bible and you get more. You have a little understanding but you trust the Lord and you start to find that you understand more. And when I talk to people these days and they say, wow, it's just sometimes a little overwhelming. 
You know, our Bible studies on Sunday morning, especially, or Wednesday nights, like, oh, it's so much. It's overwhelming. And I tell them, you'll get it. Trust me. Or don't trust me, trust him. Give it a year. That's all we're really asking here at the bridge. Give us a year. <laughs> Find out what happens, because the more you're in the word and the more your faith increases, the more your understanding is, the more you will have. It's, it's amazing, but it's how God works. He says, therefore, verse 13, I speak to them in parables because while seeing, they do not see. While hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. This is a heart problem he's describing. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says you keep on hearing, but do not understand. You keep on seeing, but will not perceive. The heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear. They close their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. And by the way, I think the only prescription for a dull-minded people is the sword of the word of God that will sharpen our understanding and increase our faith. And this world needs that sword. The church needs the sword like never before. That our faith would increase and grow rather than us sitting there going, when is lunch? As our minds get dull and bored in church, that should never happen. But Jesus says, verse 16, blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see and to hear what you hear and did not hear. What is it they desired so much? The Christ. They wanted to see the Christ, hear the Christ, know when the Christ was gonna come on the scene. Peter tells us that. And Jesus here says, you guys get to see. You get to see me. You get to hear my voice. And you want to, which by the way is the reason why they're blessed. They may not fully understand, but they're blessed because they want to. They're following Jesus. They're desirous of these things. So he says, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places. This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Hallelujah, amen. Yet he has no firm root in himself. It's only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. The one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word. And the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some 60, and some 30. Do you get it? Do you hear what he's saying? Do, do you realize what's going on here? I have all my ministry life when coming to the parable of the sower, I've always said the seed is the word of God. And that is not fully the case. Oh, the seed is the word of God. But it's more than that. It is the word of the kingdom. The seed is the word of the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. The promise of the coming kingdom. That that word dropping, so it's not just the generic overall word of God, and you can make that application, and that's fine, but the seed is the promise of the kingdom. The world wants to choke it out, saying, no, 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 it's all about the here and now or nothing at all. And so again, Jonathan Parnell says, we have this craving for depth, for meaning, but we're told we better find it in the things around us, and so the word of the kingdom gets choked, and people don't receive it. What the parable, and it's so important to get, what the parable of the sower is describing here or revealing is the word of the kingdom sown and either accepted or rejected. Are you with me? Because he already said, to you it has been granted, verse 11, to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. That's what I'm talking about, Jesus says. And when anyone, verse 19, hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one snatches it away. So it's even more specific than perhaps we ever thought. It is the word of the kingdom sown and either implanted and taking root and germinating and ultimately bearing fruit, or it's just rejected because I'm all about the here and now. 
and the worries and the cares of this world and wealth and all of that chokes it out or it never really takes root. The word of the kingdom. Stay with me, verse 24, watch this. Jesus presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven. Oh, he just said it again. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and he went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore again, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. The slave said to him, oh, do you want us to then go and gather them up? He said, nope. While you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up. Gather the wheat into my barn. Continuing verse 31. He presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. This is smaller than all the other seeds, but when it's full grown, it's larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven, he says again, is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, and this is the prophet Asaph, Psalm 78, verse 2, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Now note this, it's really important. Jesus just bundled three parables, okay? He gave the parable of the sower, and then he gives the explanation, and then he gives three more, and they're all together. Why? Because they all say the same thing. They're all three explanations of the same thing. He puts them together in context. These are what I would call, these three parables, a triad of warning, because they're parables that have a ring of concern with them. Read on, verse 36. And then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to them and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. Notice they don't mention the mustard seed and they don't mention the leaven. Just the tares in the field. Well, because the explanation of the tares and the wheat is the same explanation for the leaven and the mustard seed. Watch this. He said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. That's Jesus. The field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of of the evil one. So the wheat growing up, sons of the kingdom, those who believe in the kingdom, trust in the Lord for the kingdom, the word of the kingdom. The tares, the tares are the sons of the evil one. They've rejected the kingdom. And the enemy, verse 39, who sowed them is the devil and the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. When is the end of the age? What age is he talking about? Anyone want to guess? Hmm? See, the age of grace is what I would have thought, Lori Beth. And thank you for being bold enough to venture a guess. I always thought of the end of the age being the end of this age. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the end of the millennial kingdom. The very end of the age. Because guess what? During... Well, I'm going to get ahead of myself. I'll come back to that. But it's the end of the millennial kingdom. Just trust me on that for now. And continuing, he says, the end of the age. Then verse 41, the son of man will send forth his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom. So out of his kingdom, which means the end of the age must be at the end of the kingdom, right? He will gather out of his kingdom. Lost my place. Gather out of his kingdom into the age. I know y'all want to help me so badly. 41, all the stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. He will throw them into the furnace of fire, that is hell. Hell is not necessary until the end of the age, the end of the millennial kingdom, after the great throne judgment. So again, that's how we understand the end of the age. He will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is interesting. One more thing about hell, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and abject sorrow, gnashing of teeth and abject rebellion. 
Do you realize that when people go to hell, they will still be in a place of rebellion the whole time? You could open up hell a billion years in, and what you would find is people doing this because there will be gnashing of teeth. Verse 43, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun, quoting Daniel 12, in the kingdom of their father, he who has ears, let him hear. So you have the wheat and the tares. The wheat, the sons of the kingdom, the tares, the sons of the evil one. You have the mustard seed. You have the leaven. What's the deal with those? They all speak of the concurrent growth in the kingdom of good and evil. That both are going to grow together. Both will be coexistent if you... There's your coexist, by the way. Give me a coexist bumper sticker that just has coexist written out and half of it is in flames and half of it is in blue like heaven. I don't know, something like that. Someone figure that out. The wheat and the tares, the mustard seed, the leaven, they all speak of concurrent growth, good and evil, in the kingdom. Can't be the kingdom of heaven because that is pure righteousness. It's in the kingdom. What kingdom? Inside the inside, within the within, growing together, bearing together. The kingdom grows, listen, it grows internally until it matures to final fruition. Wheat that, that bears kernels. See, that's the thing. Wheat and tares look the same. But ultimately, when it's full grown, you see what is the wheat because it has kernels of fruit that, that is born on it. Tares have nothing. So the wheat bears fruit. The mustard seed, the mustard seed grows into, by the way, an unusually large tree. If you've ever seen a mustard plant or a mustard tree in Israel, they're not big trees. Jesus says this becomes a huge tree. Well, this is unnatural. This is a, a growth that's, that's huge. This is like the mega church. <laughs> I'm not anti Large churches if people are getting saved, but I'll tell you what, we've been listening, Hillary and I and some others, to a fantastic uh, podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And what it really looks, like, it looks at is not just Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll. What it looks at is why has the church gotten to a place where we are so enamored with mega churches? Interesting. And that's not to say that, so we need to stay tiny. No, we grow as God wants us to grow, but there is an unnatural growth that happens and a lot of times breeds celebrity pastors and breeds, and breeds a dangerous environment. And so he says mustard seed, it gets planted originally, good, good thing starts to grow and it gets, just gets this massive thing and then these birds come in and they pick and they peck and they steal away the fruit and the seeds. Oh Rick, I'm a bird watcher, I'm a bird lover. Yeah, well these birds are evil. <laughs> And I've dealt with evil birds. Those of you who were in the bard knew how evil those birds were trying to white out my notes in the middle of teaching. I'm not anti-bird, but stay with the parable. He's talking about this, this tree and these birds. What are the birds doing there? Well, they're, they're pecking and they're problems and they're droppings. and I mean, they're the whole thing. The leaven gets into the dough and spreads throughout just like the tares spread throughout the wheat. These three parables are all concurrent. They all speak of the same thing. You could almost say that between the wheat and the tares and the, and the parable of the leaven, you've got the parable of the mustard seed. In the, it's, a, it's a mustard sandwich is what it is. Okay, because you've got the mustard right there in the middle of it, and, and they all three speak of the same thing, that which permeates the dough, leaven, always indicates what in the Bible? Sin. Sin spreading in the dough. Birds spreading in the trees. Tear spreading among the wheat. They're all three the same thing. And Jesus puts them together and then gives one explanation in the wheat and the tares. You might go, well, wait a minute. Sin spreading out? This is supposed to be a parable of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like this. How can sin spread out in the kingdom of heaven? Sin affects your within the within. Sin affects the inside of the inside. Sin is concurrent as, as the kingdom is quietly growing. It's even happening this morning, by the way. The kingdom is growing in you right now. The kingdom is growing in me right now as our faith grows, as our trust in the Lord grows, as our pursuit and our desire of heavenly things grows. So the kingdom is growing among us and in this world and it can't be stopped. There is no legislation in Canada or America that can stop the growth of the kingdom. 
Those of you who have heard about all the trouble that the church in Canada, Canada of all places, is having right now. Intense persecution going on just north. And it's making its way down here. Don't fear, brothers and sisters. They can't stop the kingdom. You know what? You you kill me and someone else will just set up here. Jake will just take over. Not a problem. You know? I keep kidding him about this. He's just waiting for me to croak. (laughs) He really hates when I say that. (laughs) Or does he? The kingdom is so much bigger. It's the kingdom of heaven. It's eternal and it's growing and it can't be stopped. And no matter what happens on this earth, the millennial kingdom is gonna come. And this entire planet will know what it's like to be under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ in all beauty and perfection. And then it will flow on into the eternal kingdom. But right now it's growing. Right now it is already happening. Jesus is explaining here the seeding of the kingdom of heaven. And that is so exciting to me. Talk about having heaven in your heart. And he's talking about how we can expect it when it grows in the heart and as it continues to grow, even in this world. The kingdom is not yet, but the kingdom is. It is now, right, Les? You've heard me say this before. It's not kingdom now theology. See, that theology says the church is gonna conquer the world and hand the world over to Jesus as we have now full rule and authority and then Jesus will come back. Wrong, old Mary Lou. That's not how it's gonna work. We're seeing the opposite happen. We're seeing churches being divided and hurt and and canceled and and all this stuff happening around us. And and on the physical, on the outside, we might get really discouraged and go, wow, it's it's not going well. But the kingdom's growing. And the moment's gonna come when Jesus, in the first resurrection, calls us out. And we return with him and then boom, the world will see what the sons of the kingdom and daughters of the kingdom right now already know and already sense in our hearts, the kingdom of heaven. So those three parables, they all speak of the kingdom. The last three parables, and look at these quickly, all speak of kingdom value. Kingdom value, look at verse 44. The kingdom of heaven, again, he says it again. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid again and from joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. This is something of immense value in the kingdom of heaven. Immense value. But don't miss the subtle truth. You are not that man who buys the field. I am not that man who discovers the kingdom of heaven and says, all right, I want this, and sell all I have and buy the field. Because guess what? All I have is not enough to buy the field. I can't afford the field, and neither can you. None of us can sell all. Can you, with any amount of money, selling everything you have, giving everything to the poor, can you buy your way into the kingdom of heaven so it's not you and me? So who is this man? Who sold all he had for the kingdom of heaven? Give me the Sunday school answer. Jesus. Second Corinthians, I whispered that like Joe Biden. I meant Jesus. <laughs> Second Corinthians chapter eight, verse nine. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Only one could sell all he ever had and give all that he was to buy the kingdom, that's Jesus. Philippians chapter two, verse six, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in human likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus purchases the kingdom. But there's another question, and note this, it is the defining question of this little one verse parable. What treasure, what treasure belonging to the Son of Man is currently hidden? Now, you could, you could argue the church because as, as Rick, as you're telling us, the seed of the kingdom is in our hearts and it's growing, but it's kind of a hidden thing. No, the church isn't hidden right now. The church is apparent. It's obvious in the world around us. You can look at it. Our salvation is not a hidden thing. In fact, Jesus said, what I tell you in the darkness... Matthew 10, 27, speak in the light. 
and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. He says, you're a city on a hill. Don't hide that. The kingdom as it grows among us, the kingdom of heaven within our within is supposed to be broadcast by us. It's not a hidden thing. So what is the hidden treasure buried in the field that Jesus gave up everything to purchase? Exodus 19 verse five says, now therefore if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure to me. It's Israel. It's Israel. Israel's the hidden treasure. Israel's what the world doesn't get, doesn't see, doesn't understand. Why anti-Semitism continues to be a thing and people have no idea what God has in mind for the Jewish people. What's gonna happen when that millennial kingdom is birthed and suddenly Jesus' precious, peculiar treasure is seen and known for what it is. Psalm 135, verse four, the Lord has chosen Jacob to himself, Israel, for his peculiar treasure. Jesus gave all he had to buy the field, kingdom of heaven, for the peculiar treasure buried there currently, Israel. Don't ever forget, and I say this on purpose, don't ever forget that the kingdom was originally promised to the chosen people, Israel. You and I, we've been grafted in. We've been included. We once were not a people. Now we are a people. We once had no mercy. Now we know the mercy of God and we get to be a part of this whole thing, praise the Lord, but Israel is the peculiar treasure. It's Jesus' lineage, by the way. Verse 45, so the next one. Again, the kingdom of heaven is it's like a merchant sinking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Wow, so an, another one about Israel? No, no. See, the problem is if you say that's Israel, you're gonna offend a Jewish person. A pearl cannot describe a Jewish person. Again, the only person who could sell all he has and afford the grace that, that is bought for us is Jesus, and that's what he did. But this is a pearl, and a pearl comes from an unclean oyster. So from the unclean oyster, now we're talking about the church. You and I, we're the pearl. That's why there are pearly gates, by the way. And, oh, oh, I, I'm a pearl. This is a pearl, that's my house. That's where I get to live. The pearl. You know how pearls are made? If you don't, let me go over this quickly. An irritant. Talking about the church. An irritant. A stone or a sand or a, or a splinter literally gets inside the oyster and it wounds, the, it pierces the internal flesh of the oyster. And when it does that, it, it, the oyster secretes what's called knacker. And this stuff is an iridescent substance that starts to solidify around this irritant and soften until it becomes a pearl. Now the pearl is hard, but it's smooth all the way around so that the oyster then can just go, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> if that doesn't describe the church, I don't know what does. <laughs> Unclean irritants who have been made clean. We have been smoothed out, softened, but we're strong by the substance of the blood of Jesus. We're the pearls. And so this is the beautiful value of the church to Jesus. We see the value of the treasure, the peculiar treasure, Israel to the Lord, gonna buy the field giving all he has, but also, also he gives all he has for the pearl. So you're not left out in the parables. We're part of the whole thing. It's just such a beautiful, intentional teaching of Jesus, talking about people made clean, coming into the kingdom of heaven. And by the way, Jesus also said in Matthew 11, verse 11, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. I am sitting here in a room filled with people greater than John the Baptist. Because even if we be the least of the kingdom of heaven, we have been made great by the blood of Jesus we're a bunch of pearls. Verse 47, and again, finally, the kingdom of heaven. Note that every time he says that, every parable he says the kingdom of heaven so we can stay focused on what he's talking about. The kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach. They sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad fish they threw away. So it will be when? At the end of the age 
the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire, another picture of hell, and that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So get this, the dragnet, the dragnet. You know what this means? It means everyone is caught up in this. Everyone is caught up in this kingdom of heaven issue. Every person who's ever lived on the face of the planet, this is not universalism, everyone is caught in the dragnet. And John says in 1 John chapter 2, you've heard this before, little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The dragnet is cast Everyone is caught up in God's marvelous plan and he's pulling the dragnet in. But at the end of the age, ultimately, finally, right there at the great throne judgment, Revelation 20, good fish, the good fish will be seen for who they are, those washed in the blood of Jesus. Bad fish are those who are separated out because they reject the blood that was shed. And so the good and the bad is not based on, oh, these people are a little bit better and these people are a little bit worse. Nope. It all has to do with the blood. Are you washed in the blood or did you reject the blood? That's it. The dragnet pulls everybody up onto shore. Good fish washed in the blood are saved. Bad fish who reject the blood are thrown out. And by the way, again, verse 49, time stamps, stamps the end of the age, the end of the millennial kingdom as the dragnet pulls it all and brings it to bear. And so again, what we see in these seven parables, we see the intrusion of heaven and hell on our lives. The intrusion of what is coming of the reality. You are either a son, a daughter of the kingdom because you believe in Jesus, or you are a son or daughter of hell because you reject the only one who can save you. It is so Simple. It is not even judgmental. It's just God said, I'm going to make it as simple and easy and clear a way for them to be with me. So there's no misunderstanding. It's not like there are 1,700 different ways and you got to find one. No, there's one. There's one way into the kingdom. And that's why this is also significant because heaven and hell, man, they do intrude. The sense of transcendence beyond this life, it does interrupt our day-to-day -day living. And, and I, for one, say, let eternity intrude. Let it intrude. Recognize our deep desire for more than what we have in this short life. Seven parables of the kingdom. This kingdom, again, we're gonna see it in the thousand-year reign. It will flow right on into the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, the kingdom of heaven but again, hear me on this. The kingdom of heaven, the word of the kingdom of heaven, like a seed, is within the within. It is germinating. It is growing right now, inside, within us. And if Jesus is your Lord, then your understanding is growing. Your fruitfulness is growing. You probably don't even know it. As the kingdom grows within if you do not know Jesus as Lord, choose him now. Amen. Choose him this morning. Don't wait for the next shoe to drop. Don't wait to be divided out. Don't wait for what the Bible has so clearly told us, the distinctions between heaven and hell. The kingdom is not yet, but it is inside the inside. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked, have you? They answered him, yes. And Jesus said, therefore, every scribe who's become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and things old. If Jesus is your Lord, kingdom's growing. If he's not your Lord, there's something stagnant in your life and you know. So again, I say, just choose him now and the heavenly kingdom promise will be yours. Amen? Amen? Last question. If the word of the kingdom is implanted in you, implanted in me, if it's germinating right now, if it's growing, 
What should we expect out of that? What does that look like? The word of the kingdom, which, by the way, is the gospel, it should radically alter our direction and the perception of our lives. It should have personal, and as I said at the start, personal and practical impact on everything that's happening in us. What does that kingdom look like in the real world right now? And we'll talk about that on Wednesday night. Let's stand up together. You guys don't even bat an eye when I say that these days. We will continue on to talk about the impact of kingdom living right now. What does that look like? How how does that present? We'll talk about that on Wednesday night. But right now, again, choose the kingdom. Choose the king. Would you pray with me? And as we pray, if you have never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've never chosen just to follow him, don't overthink it. You can begin today, just pray with me. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need your forgiveness. I do not feel like a treasure, but I recognize, I realize you died for me long ago because you considered me worth dying for. So Lord, this morning, I believe that you are the Lord that you're the son of God. I believe you came into this world and you died for my sin. And I confess you as Lord of my life. And I believe you rose from the dead. And I'm just asking you, Lord, to take over now. To be my God, to have dominion over me. I don't even know what that looks like, but I ask you, Lord, to do that in me. And lead me forward so that I can be at home in heaven with you. In Jesus' name, amen.